Boy, hey. As I said earlier, it is so good to see you. I know you did the crayons and markers thing, but you, you, you made it here today. Why don't, why don't you just turn to the person next to you and say, jolly well done. Well done. Well done. You've got to do the face as well. And if you're joining us online, it's great to have you here with us as well. Welcome to you. Give us a wave. Yeah, that's right. We didn't see you then, but we're just trusting you did, so... Good to see you. Hey, a couple of things I should mention. Uh, up until two years ago, my wife Kay and I led these 12, 14-day uh, tours, actually 13-day tours to London, Israel, and the nation of Jordan. And obviously, with everything that's been happening in the last two years with the pandemic, all of that was canceled. But we're hoping to do another trip um, this year in uh, end of October, beginning part of November, and we're really excited about that. Possibly another one the following April, we're really not sure. We have an informational meeting about that tonight at 6 p.m. It will just be 45 minutes, coffee and cookies, and we'll t talk to you about the, the tour. Uh, come along if you'd like more uh, information. Also, there, there's, there's a table in the mall. I'll be out there as well, and our place is very, very limited. The airlines have cut down how many seats are available. So if you can't come tonight, let us know that you have interest. It would be great if you could join us. It's a wonderful trip, and we have some fun as well. And the, uh, the bookstore has also asked me to mention that the new, the latest edition of Life with Lucas, the Bible reading notes, starting from April, they're dated, and they are now in stock in the bookstore. They arrive from the UK, uh, but don't wait. Grab those, because they are going really quickly. So this weekend, uh, we begin a brand new series called Mirror, Mirror, Moments of Reflection. What's all that about? Well, we're looking at mirror episodes in the Bible where two events happened and they, uh, there was transformation in most cases as a result of that. And we're looking at these episodes to see what we can learn and apply for our own lives. And this weekend, our theme is fire to fire, or as it's more locally put, fire to fire. <laughs> I feel really weird saying it like that, and frankly, it hurts my face opening my mouth that wide. Fire to fire. And we're looking at two episodes in the life of Peter, and the first one is from John 18, verse 15. Simon Peter and another disciple were following Jesus. Because this disciple was known to the high priest, he went with Jesus into the high priest's courtyard, but Peter had to wait outside at the door. The other disciple, who was known to the high priest, came back, spoke to the servant girl on duty there, and brought Peter in. You aren't one of this man's disciples too, are you? She asked Peter. He replied, I am not. It was cold. And the servants and officials stood around a fire they had made to keep warm. Peter also was standing with them, warming himself. And then one of my, actually my favorite passage of Scripture in the entire New Testament, John 21. A few days later, its resurrection has happened, and now Jesus appears to his disciples. Afterwards, Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. It happened this way. <clears throat> Simon Peter, Thomas called Didymus... Nathaniel from Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other disciples were together. I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them, and they said, we'll go with you. <clears throat> so they went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. 
Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realize that it was Jesus. He called out to them, friends, haven't you any fish? No, they answered. He said, throw your net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. When they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. Then the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it is the Lord. Disciple whom Jesus loved, just a moment. Who's that? Who's that? John? John? Yeah, generally people think that. Who wrote this? John? Just saying, just saying. As soon as Simon Peter heard him say, it is the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him, for he had taken it off, <coughs> and jumped into the water. The other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish, for they were not far from shore, about a hundred yards. When they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals there with fish on it and some bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish you have just caught. Simon Peter climbed aboard and dragged the net ashore. It was full of large fish, 153, but even with so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. None of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came, took the bread, and gave it to them, and did the same with the fish. This was now the third time Jesus appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. If you've been part of the Timberline family for any amount of time, you have heard me confess that I spend a lot of my time getting lost. I'm frequently lost, and you say, why do you talk about it so much? Well, I get lost a lot, so it happens very frequently. And uh, I've got, you know, I've got maps on my phone and GPS and all of that. I've got, I've got this lady's voice on my phone, this, this British, very proper lady. Turn right, turn left, second left, well done, you know, that sort of thing. And uh, I actually pray for her. I think she's having a rough time lately, you know. She's, uh... My wife has got the voice of an Australian surfer dude with a six-pack on her phone. For some reason, I cannot think why. But despite all of this technology, we are often lost. We have a really good marriage, at least in my view, um, but we occasionally experience navigational tension. Anyone identify with that just... Just some of you nudging each other. I'd invite you to come forward for prayer. You'd probably get lost on the way, wouldn't you? It wouldn't, wouldn't be really helpful. I often feel lust, lost. In the hours and days immediately after the resurrection of Jesus, the disciples felt lost. Do not think that they just said, hooray, Jesus is alive. Let's go change the world. No. When you look at the descriptors in the New Testament concerning the days immediately following the resurrection, capturing the mood of the disciples, it was not that at all. They, they felt lost. Here are some direct quotes from the New Testament about that season. They were startled. They were frightened. They thought they'd seen a ghost. They were troubled. They were doubting. They needed to have their minds open to understand. They were afraid, yet filled with joy. They worshipped, but some doubted. They were trembling, bewildered, and afraid. They didn't believe. They stubbornly refused to believe. They gathered fearfully behind locked doors. They felt lost. And after the initial resurrection appearances of Jesus, if I get my resurrection chronology correct, there's about a week when there's nothing. And now Jesus arrives, and I can pretty much guarantee they didn't expect him to show up on that beach in Galilee. Let me tell you why. 
68 miles from Jerusalem, Jesus had told his disciples that he would meet them in Galilee, yes. But he told them that he would meet them on a mountain. And he did. You read about that in Matthew 28. But this was not a forewarned meeting. And then it's an unusual time. It's, it's nighttime, very early hours of the morning. In Galilee, you would fish during the night and then sell the catch in the morning if you had a catch to sell. And it's interesting to note the way John describes all of this. John, in his gospel, uses light and darkness like an artist with a color palette, not only describing what happened, but the mood. And so Nicodemus comes to Jesus by night. Judas goes out to betray Jesus by night. And then it's also ordinary. I mean, think about it. The, Jesus had just accomplished the greatest accomplishment in the history of the cosmos. And you can imagine a couple of angels, maybe British angels, leaning over the parapet of heaven. And, and one says to the other, sounding remarkably like Prince Charles, what does our Lord do us now? And, and the other one says, he cooketh breakfast. What do you mean? Cooking breakfast. And we know that there was already fish and bread cooking when the disciples arrived. So Jesus either went fishing or shopping. I mean, if you want to believe that he just stood on the beach and said, Tilapia, come forth. <laughs> you can believe that. But the thing is this, it's also beautifully ordinary. If I'd have been responsible for the resurrection appearances of Jesus, I'd have had navy jets. I'd have had 64,000 angels in fluorescent yellow Doc Martins tap dancing on the beach. He is risen, yellow, blue, red smoke in the sky, a choir and an orchestra singing and playing the hallelujah chorus prophetically because it hadn't been written yet. cooking breakfast through his weary, lost friends. Full disclosure here, I know how to feel lost and not just in the car. And I know how to feel weary. Many of you know, because I've talked about it through the years, I spent a year in clinical depression. It felt bad. Not only did I feel bad, I felt bad because I felt bad. Because there's an irrational shame sometimes that Christians, particularly Christian leaders, can feel. And I've talked about depression very openly because I want to empower people to have the shame of that, which is irrational, lifted off of them because our emotions are not the barometer of our spirituality. And my Christian friends weren't that helpful when I was depressed. I think they'd previously worked for Job. So we hear you haven't got the victory, Jeffrey. Well, apparently not, saith I. Well, what can we do to sort you out? Because some Christians are on a mission from God to sort everybody out. What can we do to fix you? What can we do to help? And I felt like saying, how about going away forever? That would be a cracking good start. <laughs> okay, a bit more disclosure. I wondered about saying this, but hey, here goes. I'm a bit weary of Christian leaders who only have challenges in the past. You know, in 1837, I had a temptation, but I'm over it now. 
That's wearisome, unrealistic, and it disenfranchises people. So, let me just say, I don't want your sympathy, I don't want you to comment, I don't want you to come up and pray for me afterwards, but this last two years has been a time of emotional turbulence and shadowlands for me, and particularly these last two months. I tell you that not because I want you to say, oh, bless his heart. I tell you that because I just want you to know that I'm a fellow traveler in fragility on the journey. I'm with you if you struggle. I know what it means to feel lost. In these last two years, in the global disaster of the pandemic and now the horrors that are unfolding in Ukraine, and we'll be focusing on that a little more later, we're experiencing apocalyptic fear with headlines like we never imagined. And as a pastor, we can't just stick our heads in the sand and just pretend that this stuff is not going on. No. Our responsibility is to bring God's word into that situation. People are afraid and they are sad. And Peter knew what fear was. That's why he denied Jesus. Matthew tells us all the disciples fled. Why did they run? Because they were afraid. And he knew sadness. Matthew 26, after denying, denying Jesus, it says he went outside and wept bitterly. The Greek word means loud, audible weeping. He knew sadness. By a fire, Peter denied Jesus. By a fire, mirror, mirror, Jesus restored Peter. So what can we learn? Well, first of all, let's know if you're following in the, in the bulletin, the online app, whatever, um, follow along with me. Self-confidence can be blinding. Self-confidence can be blinding. Matthew 26 shows us Peter's level, this lack of self-awareness, that he had. Peter replied, even if all fall away on account of you, I never will. Truly, I tell you, Jesus answered, this very night before the rooster crows, you would disown me three times. But Peter declared, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. That didn't last long. It's been said that common sense is not that common these days, even among those that we view as clever. Maybe it's a phenomenon that you've witnessed a brilliant person, renowned for their intelligence, makes a disastrous life decision. Clever people not only make unwise decisions all the time, but some studies suggest that very intelligent people are more likely to blunder into disastrous choices, especially about finances. Why is that? It's because they lack intellectual humility. And they are so convinced that they are right, overconfident, they believe in themselves too much. And then we, developed, we develop blind spots about ourselves. Some years ago, I was back in England and I was passing this men's clothing store. And I looked in the window and I saw this glorious Technicolor psychedelic shirt. And I've got a bit of a shirt problem, really. So... I decided to investigate, so I opened the door of the store. The ding on the door announced my arrival, and the pre-adolescent behind the counter who had poured himself into a pair of skinny jeans, which actually made me nervous for his health, he looked at me, 
And he looked me up and down, and he said, looking for something a bit more trendy, are we, sir? So I ignored that, and I said, that, that, that shirt, in the, I'd like, can I try that on? He said, certainly, sir, it's on sale, it's a bargain. So five minutes later, I emerged from the store wearing the shirt. I was so excited um, about it, and during the day, people complimented me on my fashion choice. But some of them had this big smile on their faces, and I'm thinking, is the shirt a bit too much? Do I look like Joseph and his amazing Technicolor dream coat? Anyway, I got home, and I walked in, and Kay's standing there, and she went, wow, and actually put sunglasses on. And uh, I did a little twirl just to show her the magnificence of the shirt, and she burst out laughing. And uh, I said, what's going on? And she said, uh, you haven't noticed, have you? There was a huge label on the back of the shirt. And it said, massively reduced, won't last long. <laughs> and I had spent the whole day walking around with other people noticing that about me, but I didn't know it. Actually, 30 minutes later, Kay spent 20 minutes looking for her sunglasses. They were on her head. Yes. It was obvious to me, but not to her. What is it about us that we don't notice, but others do? Do we have self-awareness? A prayer that we can pray this week goes like this. Lord, show me me. Secondly, failure isn't final. Failure isn't final. We read, when they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals there with fish on it and some bread. Now, I'm sure Peter felt ashamed about his behavior. We do know that Peter had had a one-on-one -on -one meeting with Jesus. All we know is that it was private and it happened on Easter Day. You can read about it in Luke 24, 1 Corinthians 15. But now, Peter's with Jesus again. And imagine this, Peter and John are out there on the boat with the other disciples. Study the New Testament, and you'll see that Peter always takes action before John, and John always understands before Peter. So, of course, it's John who figures out who it is on the beach. It is the Lord! Splash! What? He's gone. He's put his coat on before jumping into the water, which frankly is odd, but that's not important right now. And he runs up onto the beach. And guess what is on the beach? There's Jesus and there's a fire. Same Greek word used to describe the fire. Fire that Peter warmed his hands at. What's going on? Is Jesus tormenting Peter? I don't think so. I think Peter, Jesus, is locating himself in Peter's story. He's inviting him to sit by a fire which does speak of his failure. But once again say, I love you, Jesus. Because you see, shame which is different from guilt. Guilt says you did this wrong. Shame says you're wrong. Shame silences our worship. It makes us want to back away. The forgiveness of God doesn't say, it doesn't matter, it's not important, don't worry about it. The forgiveness of God says, yeah, you did it. Sit down by the fire and now accept magnificent grace. And some of us, are shame addicts. There are people listening to this right now, here and online. You're addicted to shame. And you define yourself by your worst moment. I can do that. 
I can do that when it comes to parenting. I look back on parenting our kids, and I think of the worst moments when I didn't do well, like teaching my daughter to drive. There should be something in the Bible about that. Proverbs 94, 7. Ridest not in thine daughter's chariot, for it will not go well with thee. Some of you are writing that down. That's not a verse. When I think about parenting, I look back on my worst moments. What is it about us that we so bitterly regret and we need to sit down by the fire and not get forgiven, but affirm forgiveness that's already, already, already been given? Thirdly, we love because we are so loved. Then the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it is the Lord. Now, we believe that to be John, as I mentioned earlier. I used to be irritated with John. Like, what's that about? Disciple whom Jesus loved. Did he have a badge? Loves me more. No, no, no. I don't think so. I think it's beautiful. I think John decided the most important thing that we needed to know about John was not his name, but the fact that Jesus loved him. Because the most important news we can ever grasp is the truth that God loves not just the world. That's easier. Us. Because you see, we know us a bit. The worst stuff about us. And we know he knows everything about us. And we also know that there's no fault or failure in him. So that's awkward. We are loved. Holy Spirit. Sink that deep into us. When we wrestle with grace. Sir, I know you hate what you did. But you're loved. And I know I just prayed just then, and some of you are thinking, is that the end? Can we go? You know, no, there's more. Four. We're called to more than survival. We're called to more than survival. We read, when they'd finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you tr truly love me more than these? Question, these what? Now, the traditional view is that this was uh, Jesus asking the, the Peter, do you love me more than the other disciples love me? But I question that because Peter had already tried that one and it hadn't worked out well. There are some commentators, and this is speculation, but there are some commentators who suggest that Jesus might have been saying to Peter, do you love me more than you love fishing and fish? You say, what? Think about it. There's a lot of fish in this story. I'm going fishing, says Peter. The disciples decide to join him. John gives us a fishing update. They didn't catch a thing. Jesus shows up and asks for a fishing update. We didn't catch a thing. He gives them fishing directions. We're told they catch fish. We're told the conditions of the net. We're even told how many fish they caught. And that makes me laugh. 153 fish. On that beach that day with the resurrected Jesus standing there, Someone's counting fish. 45, 46, 47, 48, 153. Woohoo! And then Jesus says, Do you love me more than these? Maybe it was the fish. Because consider this with me fishing 
represented Peter's everyday ordinary existence. Security, predictability. Fisherman Peter wouldn't have to worry about persecution or martyrdom. It was just doing life. And sometimes I could be tempted by that. Sometimes I don't want to worry about the world and human trafficking and, and my next door neighbor. Sometimes I don't want a purpose-driven life. I don't want purpose and I don't want life. I, I do want life. I don't want purpose and I don't want driven. I do want life. Let's just make that very clear. <laughs> but it won't work. Because we've been kissed by a vision of something far greater that is bigger than ourselves, that's beyond survival. And notice, in this situation, Peter, who'd been told he'd be a fisher of men, now the metaphor switches, and he's told he's going to be a shepherd of sheep. Feed my sheep. He is told that he's going to spend his life caring. Caring. As we think about all that's going on in our world today, we too are called not just to survive in the limited horizon of our own stuff, but to actually care for victims of oppression and injustice. Our dear friends who've been assistants with our AG team for many years are currently sheltering in place at a local school together with approximately 500 families we hear. And they are passing the time by uh, preparing food for soldiers, having little sleep apart from the fact that of course there are bombs falling and so it's, it's hard to sleep, but they're also just extremely busy doing everything they can to assist those who are on the front lines. Um, we hear that there are multiple buildings around the city um, where multiple families are housed and in general families and people are just trying to come together in groups because in groups there is safety. Our friend Vera, who is the wife of the assistant who's been such a great friend, She's Ukrainian, of course, and she just has a heart of gold. She loves her country. And so we know she's asked the Lord, how can I help? And this is what she's been able to put her hands to, is to preparing food, doing whatever she can to help those that are on the front lines. This is totally her heart, but um, her son did send some pictures of her hands after cooking for these hundreds of people all blistered up and um, just hands that demonstrate love. The story of Vera is a beautiful story, but it's really just a micro picture of what is happening all over Ukraine in basements, bomb shelters everywhere. We're hearing those stories with orphanages where the directors have left and the church has taken over because the, the kids are there. They need help. Lord, we just pray 
for the soldiers on both sides, that the, the Russian soldiers are just young boys who also are full of fear. And I just pray, God, that you would bring an end to this, that you would frustrate plans of the aggressor, that you would uh, shut down equipment, that there'd be confusion, and that there would be uh, ultimately peace, Lord. And we ask for your continued hand in Jesus' name. And everybody said, and I'm really glad to be able to tell you that through our missionary advisor team uh, here at Timberline, we've been in direct contact this week with two groups of people who are in hiding and being protected by the church, and we've sent resources there. And also, uh, through our ongoing partnership with Convoy of Hope, they are there as well, helping with the refugee crisis. A million and a half people displaced so far. We are called to care. Well, let's uh, just continue on for a few more moments and realize the fifth thing here, and that is God wants our now. God wants our now. Here's this amazing prophecy that Jesus gave to Peter. He said, I tell you the truth, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted, but when you're old, you'll stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Then he said to him, follow me. I cannot imagine that. If God said to me, would you like to know how you're going to die? I think I'd say, hold that. But Peter was called to live his life on prophetic death row for the rest of his days, knowing that he would die a martyr's death. Why do I raise that point? It is simply this. When craziness is going on in our world, we can be tempted to think, well, where is God? Let's recognize that the entire New Testament was written by people who every day face the threat of death. The context for all that we have about faith is in the kind of uncertainty that is often felt in this season. And I believe that in the now, in the this season, we can live well as we stand in faith, in prayer, in giving. I pray that when this too has passed, that we as a Timberline family in these various ways, that we will have done well. That as the politicians make their decisions, we won't find ourselves sniping at each other because we have different views, but that we will navigate this season. God knows, and I say that reverently, the church in Ukraine is doing amazingly at the moment. May we, treated with the luxury currently of peace, Serve Jesus faithfully and well in this season. If we're going to do that, here's the last thing. We need to keep our eyes. Let's keep our eyes on Jesus. Peter turned and saw that the disciple whom Jesus loved was following them. This was the one who had leaned back against Jesus at the supper and had said, Lord, who's going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he asked, Lord, what about him? Jesus answered, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? You must follow me. I mean, I sympathize with Peter. He's just been told he's going to die a martyr's death. And here comes John, the disciple whom Jesus loved. I'd have said, what about him? Have you got a cracker for him as well? Jesus could have said, yes, well, actually, he is going to be exiled to the island of Patmos. They will try to boil him alive. He will survive. Does that help you out, Peter? 
He didn't. You say, what's that to you? Which is a very nice way of saying, mind your own business. Let's not be distracted at this time. Let's immerse ourselves in Scripture. Let's spend our time in quietness and prayer. And here's the thing that I'm doing. This is just my personal thing. I found myself somewhat addicted to the news. So what I'm trying to do is go back to the news maybe twice a day and pray, but not allow myself to continuously bombarded with everything. Am I trying to be oblivious? Absolutely not. I'm trying to be focused and prayerful in my reflections. For me personally, it doesn't have to be your way, but let's keep our eyes on Jesus. Well, as we prepare to go to prayer, um, I'd like to end this message by sharing a, a, a prayer. It's called the Methodist Covenant. Our Methodist friends pray this prayer once a year, but they pray it after very careful consideration. It's a heavy prayer of commitment for the now, for this season. So I'd like us to take a look at these words. And I am not asking us to pray this now. Because I don't think we should rush into making statements that we haven't thought about. But I'd like us to read this together. And the prayer is also available in the app on our website. I'd like us to use this as a reflection. And perhaps if we're able to in our own time, we're able to actually meaningfully articulate these words, we can use this as a prayer of commitment. And if you're not a follower of Jesus, you could use this prayer to begin that journey as well. So can I invite you, if you're able, would you stand with me, please? Let's stand together. And um, walk with me through this. Let's not mumble our reading of this. Let's Let's speak it out. But again, I'm not asking us to pray it. I'm not praying this yet. I need to think about this some more. Let's read together. I am no longer my own, but yours. Put me to what you will. Rank me with whom you will. Put me to doing. Put me to suffering. Let me be employed for you or laid aside for you. Exalted for you or brought low for you. Let me be full. Let me be empty. Let me have all things. Let me have nothing. I freely and wholeheartedly yield all things to your pleasure and disposal. And now, glorious and blessed God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you are mine and I am yours. So be it. And the covenant made on earth, let it be ratified in heaven. Amen. So Holy Spirit, help us this week as we consider these words. We thank you for all that you are and all that you want to do in us. We give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen.